This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. So car parking spaces aren't something you think about very often until you can't find one or you have to pay an exorbitant amount for one. But there's more to car parks than what you might first think. It's not just finding that perfect spot out the front of the supermarket. Car parks are political, they're environmental, and they are the cause of so many debates within a community. Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Bronwyn O'Shea, joining you from ABC Wodonga. Bron, I have so many strong feelings on car parks. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about the stress that car parks can raise in many of us. But I was thinking about today's show and I was thinking about one particular council that's having a big debate at the moment around whether or not they should be charging their volunteer surf lifesavers to park out the front of the beach. So they're volunteering their time, they're saving people's lives, yet car parking is costing them on average $50 a day. Now, there's something just not quite right about that scenario. It gets complicated, doesn't it, when you start to think, well, who should pay and how much should we pay? And are we designing car parking for people or for profit? It's interesting. Some urban planners argue that actually parking is too cheap and too easy. And we're both kind of grimacing at that prospect. But they argue that if we made parking more expensive and made it harder to find our cities would actually be far more livable. It really depends on what you're coming into a key space for. So whenever we talk about car parking in the past, anyone that needs to spend a lot of time at a hospital, whether it be for visiting people, working there, or if you're having ongoing treatment, the cost of parking at a hospital is through the roof. Then you've got access to car parking, the way we design disability car parking, how safe women feel in those god-awful high-rise car parks, which I, if I'm on my own, would never park in one. Just do Mm. not feel safe in those multi-level high-story car parks. And that's the challenge, isn't it? As soon as you start to talk about changes to parking, whether it's taking parks away, charging more, there are so many flow-on effects because what happens, what goes in its place? You know, public transport needs to step up. Uh, The walkability needs to improve. There are so many other things to consider um, with that funny little rectangle (laughs) we call a car park. Absolutely. And the debates that it's caused in society, and that was something that really rose to the surface during COVID when we had lots of outdoor cafes and lots of outdoor seating, and that was at the expense of car parking. But then to continue that on, Not everybody was happy about that. So you can start to see that car parking is more than just car parking. How does a parking spot impact you, whether it be cost, availability or accessibility? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning, Michelle Hunty with you in Melbourne. Bromwyn O'Shea joining you from ABC Wodonga as we look at the politics and the people behind car parking. It's not just us that are a little bit obsessed with car parking, Bron, because Dr Elizabeth Taylor is, she's a senior lecturer in urban planning and design at Monash University. And a lot of your work, Elizabeth, looks at car parking. As humble and as small as they appear, they're a big part of our lives. Yeah, and I sort of accidentally got into this area. Like most people, I didn't think about it. I didn't (laughs) um, sort of come out and think, I'm going to research car parking for years. But I came across it really 
through kind of looking at all these flashpoints around the city and around change. In that case, I was looking at housing and new apartment developments and some of the arguments that are happening around that and the fears people had that if we didn't put enough parking in apartments, then then it would be even harder to find street parking. And through that kind of initial um, foray into car parking, I started to, first of all, I read this book, The High Cost of Free Parking by Donald Shoup, which for urban planners ends up being this kind of red pill thing you take where suddenly you're insufferable at dinner parties and you disagree with everyone. But yeah, it's actually this huge kind of um, key to the city to transport to the land use. So first of all, there's a lot more car parking than we generally appreciate because you mostly only notice it when you're looking for it and you can't find it. So there's some great maps and statistics on this, but some cities, it's something like 40% of the whole area is car parking. <gasps> wow. And you can, you sort of, it's particularly kind of problematic in a lot of downtown areas in the US, but you can look at parking map, maps of other places. I've done this exercise for parts of Melbourne and regional Victoria, where just the surface level parking is sort of a third. In Buffalo, New York, it's more than half of the, the city is car parking. So there's more of it than you think, and also a lot of it is, is kind of planned and And has that free. happened over a short period of time, like over the last few decades? It really arose in response to rising car ownership, so motorisation. It's pretty much characteristic of, of most cities. They go through, you know, increase wealth and prosperity, you get more cars, and then you're starting to try to accommodate cars in the city. And in your sort of intro, you were saying, do we plan them for parking for people of profit or cars of profit? And it's this kind of adjustment that cities had to make to no longer being at a human scale, to being at a car scale, because we've sort of become at one with our cars so much, if we forget that they're actually quite a lot larger than we are. So you had, in most cities, including Melbourne, a lot of chaos, as in the 1920s, 1930s, you got more and more cars in the city, and trying to find ways to, to plan for that, find space for that, and kind of meet the demands of the motorist for space. So it's really since the 1950s in, in Melbourne, that the city was redesigned around parking and new areas planned around car parking. And even just, I know we'll probably get to that, the new spaces and the new cars taking up even more of them, but just an individual space with all the turning circles and things like that is, Ooh, ends up yeah. being sort of 20 square metres. So this is a, in a city, it's actually a sizable amount of space that's, that's a car so park. Elizabeth, if we zoom right out and take that bird's eye view and look at maybe a third to a half of our cities being taken up by parking spaces, could we afford to lose some of them? Well, there's a sort of question of who pays for it now, and that's a really tricky one to have, and that's how I've become one of those people that sort of um, has read that book and maybe doesn't have the same kind of read on it that, that most people do. But um, the way parking tends to work now, there's some important exceptions, um, things like the airport or hospitals, as you mentioned, but most parking, the user doesn't pay for it. So the majority of parking in Melbourne, most of the time you don't pay. Instead, the cost is, is part of, well, everyone pays for it. So it's um, that space that you could have used, either it's land area or it's building area that you could have used for open space that you could have used for walking space that you could have used for housing or retailing and all those kinds of things it's always this opportunity cost as well as a literal cost so when you start to see something like the uh, commuter car parks there was a kind of um, you know furor over the uh, car park rots a few years ago but part of that was actually putting attention on at commuter car parks how much each space costs just to build a multi-deck car park it's something around 60 to 80 thousand dollars per space so that is already that's being paid. extraordinary. That's already being paid for all the time, but we don't pay for it as motorists. So that kind of question of can we afford to have a few or less, sort of it's a question of who's paying now, I guess. 
this, Rish and Bronwyn. What about all of those mega utes that park in all sorts of spots, including disabled spots and take up two parts because they think they're so special? That's from Scott in Williamstown. I think Scott is feeling some of the rage that many of us <laughs> feel when we look at the size of cars versus the size of car parking now. And not just the car spot itself, but the design of the entire car park. So... Bron and I were chatting off air when we are in a shopping centre, for example, and you are trying to get in or out of a car park, the radio is off, the sunglasses are off, the window is down, and no one is allowed to talk. Because it's like are- every sense is maximised. <laughs> I need to have all the input. <laughs> it is. I am like hyper-stressed in a car park situation. It's like next level. What causes that stress and do they design them to be super stressful <laughs> that's the ironic is because i think first of all car parks are under designed there's been too much of an emphasis on supply we need a number and not em- enough thought about how they feel or how people navigate them so there's a question in that as well um second part of it as we're experiencing with the new kind of mega utes or what trucks is that um, car park design hasn't changed that much. The cars have, so the portion of people that have larger cars, even just sort of moderate-sized SUVs, are significantly larger than they were. The average car was 20, 40, 50 years ago. So that navigating um, larger cars in the same space is part of the stress. And then I guess I would add to that that cars cost an awful lot of money, right? So the stress is, you know any kind of scratch or kind of interaction here is going to be a huge problem for you and and mm-hmm. you know other people so it's an intense kind of uh experience of of that kind of value i suppose and then there's all the fear i suppose there's some you would sort of getting at that with the question of the yeah and i think there's a, I've got a bit of ptsd too because someone backed into me and so every time i go in there now i'm like oh my god it's gonna happen again I remember my mum got a new car and she just parked miles away from anybody. She was like, I'm not running any risk. (laughs) Molly has called from Epping. Hello, Molly. Yes, hello. We moved to be, you know, we're near the station in Epping, but it's impossible to get a park there. They're making fancy stations, but they're not putting car parking on there. So we've at times had to drive practically into Melbourne, still not find every station, not find parking, come back home and actually walk, which is difficult for me, uh, to go and buy train. Why can't they see that the the need for car parking at stations yeah and that's such a big part of this when we talk about park and ride Mm. molly is bang on there liz in that there's that not enough car parks at train stations i would respectfully disagree i think that um the victorian government both sides have been kind of committed to building a lot of car parking at stations for 20, 30 years, it's a very big election promise and things like the Level Crossing Removal Project have a legislated commitment to no, less, no net loss of car parking. It's obviously Do you think they've just underestimated do... how many car parks well, they this need, is though? Part, part of the sort of impossibility task of car parking is you want it to be right there, you want, the, want it to be in front at all times. There's this mismatch between public transport and car parking because the capacity of the train is so high. That's what makes the train public transport. You fit hundreds of people on the train, hundreds of car parks takes up a kilometre of car parking. And if we look at Tarnit or um, Wyndham Vale, where they're putting even more car parking in there, you, you, your car park extends a kilometre out from the station. And then the effect um, to try and cater to that, um, that sort of link between car parking and, and trains. But the more the car is used, the less the car park is going to meet that need. So I think car park access 
is important, but the role of car parking at there, either you have to be looking at multi-deck, which ends up being expensive, or you need to think about which stations do you concentrate that on. And a lot of other cities around the world, the role of the park and ride is more about the end of the line. And the other yes. stations, it's other mm. kinds of options. Or you need to make it cheaper and easier to get um, things like taxis or rideshare, don't you? Because they won't require a car park because they drop you off and move on. So it's, you know, again, there's so many flow-on effects. And there's other options. I saw a presentation last week around Brisbane. I'm not sure it's been successful, but they've been trying to use, they call it last mile transport. The sort of that important link, which the caller was speaking about, of getting to the station, particularly if you don't um, can't walk the distance, they're looking at things like those scooters, they're looking at the kind of rideshare and things like that. What's the role there? Because the the more you build the car park, either you're taking up valuable space around the car park with that, or you the more the train gets used, the less you can actually meet that even physically. Michael is in Foster. Welcome, Michael. Hello, Michael. I'm hey. just bringing up about the... Hello. Hello. You're on air, Michael. What did you want to say? Yes. Yeah. There's an extra burden on people coming from out of town um, because if you reduce parking, then you've, uh, you've changed the conditions for people that aren't familiar. So local knowledge is really good about parking. But if you're an infrequent visitor, you're trying to find a park. You've got no choice but to be using a car um, and... You, you, you struggle a lot more. So uh, there's urban planners probably think in terms of an urban audience all the time, but the, there are different audiences that are using that sort of parking environment. That's true, and it's probably true of the public transport system, actually, <laughs> when you kind of think about that's probably why the free tram network was brought in as tourists, are, you know, they're unfamiliar with the environment and how to get around. So that, that sort of things that are transparent, transparent and free are important, but then... There's this tension again between, you know, people coming in from out of town. Um, you know, there's so many different users that are trying to make um, use of parking space, mm. particularly public parking space. You have visitors, you have shopkeepers, you have workers, you have, um, you know, patients at hospitals, etc. And they all have different kinds of time. Well, and, and we, let's take a hospital, for example. We might drill into this a little bit more. But if you look at who's paying for parking at hospitals, I wonder whether there's ever any idea or possibility of some form of subsidised parking. So if you're working there, if you're a healthcare worker, I remember lots of people again during COVID were just going and paying nurses and doctors parking uh, throughout when they were doing like 24 hours straight. But if you're a cancer patient, for example, uh, you're still paying high and exorbitant amounts of parking. It's, should hospitals be under some different type of regulation when it comes to what you can charge? I think politically, and I'm, I'm aware I'm on air here, politically it's probably just every user group at a hospital, nobody wants them to pay for parking. Nobody wants a doctor to pay for parking, a nurse, a patient, a visitor. Every part of this question is um, difficult and it's, it's not sort of a situation where you want to be charging, uh, particularly equity concerns, people can't afford it. But, and then you come back to this question of the physical space. I've seen a lot of, say, Ballarat or Geelong uh, hospitals, there's this real tension around the, the more parking you build, the less hospital you have. So mm, when, you, when you build hospitals now, most of the discussion is around the new multi-deck car parking. And then you take all the different users, um, the nurses that work night shift, the doctors, variable, the patients who are there long, long periods of time, the visitors that are there to pick them up. 
all of them have different kind of time uh, uses there and somebody unfortunately has that job of um, making the most of the parking that they have or building even more of it and in a hospital situation again you end up with people can't really walk that far so it should be as difficult it is partly an access question rather than something that can be solved just with parking and its price because there's believe me there's been so many attempts to make parking at hospitals completely free and it doesn't solve the access issue so you can start to see why a car park is more than a car park how does it impact you and your life whether it be cost availability or accessibility this is the conversation hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne, your co-host this morning, Bronwyn O'Shea, joining you from ABC Wodonga and in the studio, Dr Elizabeth Taylor, a senior lecturer in urban planning and design at Monash University. As we look at the politics behind car parking, this text, Bronwyn, said Jerry Seinfeld summed it up. They're making more <laughs> new cars than they're making car parking space. Something has to give. And the reference to Seinfeld, which I generally find in my everyday life, anyhow <laughs> but if we get a good car park out the front of something it's called the Costanza that's because right there's a lot of parking <laughs> parking references inside Seinfeld because it was a show about nothing so they talked about something really and mundane. he was never leaving right yep. so that's it even my daughter who actually has started to watch Seinfeld but she'll say look mum there's a Costanza quick let's <laughs> I love this text from Doris too that says, Hi ladies, raising the stress levels of parking, take your learner driver into a shopping centre car park. Can Mm. I just raise the stakes again and say at Christmas time? (laughs) And then it's Mm. even more chaos. Um, And this as well from Pauline at Ocean Grove. (laughs) What we need at train stations are frequent connecting buses, not acres and acres of car parks. And I think that's the thing, isn't it, that we can't talk about parking in isolation. Parking and public transport almost have to go Mm. together. An access question, yeah. So we need to get people of different abilities to be able to get to the train and that is part part of that is parking but it's not the only answer even though it seems like it for politicians, I think. Let's head to Wangaratta. Jeff has phoned in. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Bronwyn. Yeah, Bronwyn, you'd be no doubt aware of the uh, Aubrey Tax Office multi-storey car park that they put there in Aubrey. Now, isn't that an absolute godsend that they put in there? You go there, it's free parking. You're an absolute very, very short walk away from all (laughs) the shops that are around there. I mean, what could be better? I mean, you couldn't hope for anything better than that. But um, I must say, from seeing a lot of the uh, suburban roads and intersections around uh, Victoria and so on, one thing that really does leave me wondering just necessarily is when the people in Melbourne design some of the roads out in regional Victoria and intersections, I'm just wondering necessarily if they're at times actually affected by drugs or whatever because some of it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Jeff, good to hear from you. Thank you in Wangaratta. But, I mean, lots of people saying, well, I live in the country. I live in a small country town. Car parking is the last thing I need to worry about. I could park 50 cars on my half-acre block. That's from Alan. Is it just a city thing, do you think, Bron? Nope. Because, you, yes, you can park 50 cars on your half-acre block. Uh, but some people that, do. But you, but you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's money right. out of it. <laughs> but you leave your half-acre block. You still have to go places and do things. And, I mean, even if you live in the country, you've got to have to access Melbourne probably uh, at some point uh, or even a, a larger regional centre. And I think there is potentially that different mentality too of... I live in the country, so I'm going to get a park out the front. And the number of times I see cars just doing laps oh, yeah. in Bentigo, regional yeah, cities, mm. waiting for that golden park to open up right out the well, front of where they want to go. Well, I come from a very long line of refusing to pay for parking people. <laughs> and 
right. Yeah. It runs strong in our yeah. family. Yeah. So you will drive, even if it takes you an extra half an hour until, and you'll be miles away to the point where you're, yeah. it's not even worth, you're almost at home. But you it's in paid. principle, yes. Yes, and there's principle. another Seinfeld reference. I won't make it. Um, but this is well known in in the sort of parking research circles. Actually, a starting point for a lot of research into parking is the cru- what they call cruising. People out of principle and you know uh, personal identity will not pay for parking, so they'll circle around something like on average sort of 15 minutes looking for a free car park that also happens to be miraculously out the front. This is considered to be... I mean, A cruiser, been, is that what I am? A cruiser. <laughs> it, it's a big part of congestion in Sydney, so sometimes yes. the motivation to change parking is, oh, is not yes. so much about the, um, the car park itself, it's about traffic. And if you have... So some cities move towards, rather than necessarily changing the number of parking spaces, it's about um, signage. This is where the parking is, and actually also just removing the possibility that's, that there's going to be one that you don't know about that's free. They all cost, and just sort of taking that kind of dream out of the equation you're just going to have to to park and pay and i think that we we're talking off air before about regional centers that transition they make that parking out the front is kind of part of what people value about yeah, a regional center i like center, to be called a cruiser though than <laughs> a tight ass which is what my <laughs> husband calls me <laughs> uh now peter has called from surrey hills he says let's look at tokyo they yeah. know what they're doing over there. Hi, Peter. Can we please? Yes. Oh, hi. Yeah. <laughs> what are they doing in Tokyo? No street parking. Uh, this is one answer. Yeah. But over yeah, to you. and also uh, bikes. Um, there's pi- bicycle parking facilities in in loads Tokyo railway stations for 300 plus bikes. Mm. Uh, you can fit around up to 20 bikes in one car space, and the coverage of a bike in terms of getting to a train station it's an easy ride two or three kilometres and for every bike there's one less car Mm. but much better much more efficient use of space Did you live there or just spend time there Peter? No I've been over there on some ski trips and and just done some tourist travelling around Tokyo but just about every train station has got like double decker bike facilities that are covered here in Melbourne you're lucky most train stations don't have dedicated bike parking some of them have mm. it out in the most of it have it out in the weather, and the new ones they're putting in there's only room for twenty or thirty bikes max. That's, That's a great point. Is that going to make a big to, difference, Liz? Yeah, Tokyo. The differences between Japanese cities and and many other places that have what we call conventional or supply based parking are really interesting. So I'm glad to, to have the call to bring that up. One of the points of difference in most Japanese cities is they just have absolutely no street parking. So there was a kind of accidental legal change in Japan after the Second World War where. Uh, they defined if you left a car somewhere for more than half an hour, they just called it storage. So they don't think of it as being kind of part of the transport system. All their parking is off-street garages. And planners and, 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 I guess, urban designers don't think about the street as being somewhere you store a car. It's somewhere that people move around. So rather than having that cruising looking for the street parking, there's a really a big market for off-street garages. So you always pay for parking, but there's lots of different smaller-scale, large-scale parking um, options. They're always just off the street. And there's another point of difference is that um, in residential situation or other kinds of new developments here, when you go to build new development, you have to provide a certain number of off-street car parking spaces. In Japan, in a residential context, when you buy a car, you have to show that you have a car park for it. Oh. It doesn't have to be at your house, though. It just has to be within a walking distance of your house. There's a lot of what they call neighbourhood parking. You know, 
shared parking facilities where people rent a space for a month or whatever. And so when they buy the car, they show that they've got somewhere to put it because if you leave it on the street overnight, you will get a ticket. So it's almost like make the rules, don't build the car parks, and then habits will change. In this case, it became much more of a real, for better or worse, it became really a real estate situation rather than something that was considered a public good that planners have to think about. How do we meet different needs? How do we kind of use the public street for parking? It's something that planners in Japan don't have to think about. But maybe it doesn't sort of sit well with our sense of what parking is here. Well, we're going to look at rethinking parking with our very next guest here on the Conversation Hour. Uh, As we talk about whether we need to look at parking differently, the cost, the access, um, and just our attitudes towards it. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Michelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Bronwyn O'Shea joining you from ABC Wodonga and Dr Elizabeth Taylor in the studio, a senior lecturer in urban planning and design at Monash University as we pull apart the politics behind parking. I guess the thing is too, we sort of see them as a public space and then once we realise that these are profitable spaces and they are built now for very different reasons, although Cell in Carlton North says, I am a parking whisperer. (laughs) I always do the drive-by with the right mindset and there will always be a park out the front i did it on sunday in ackland street so maybe it's all about the zen. zen yeah i can park here sort of self-actualization of yeah like the secret <laughs> uh, our next guest says in fact that parking is too cheap and too easy and our cities would be much better places to live if we changed our attitudes to parking david mepham is an urban planner and the author of rethinking parking hi david Good morning, how are you? Good. So what is it about our current attitude that you think might need to change? Well, it's, it's an attitude that's evolved over the last century of parking and it's the, the idea that you know, the, entitled, the entitled driver can park wherever they like, when you know where and when, and also for free, and that's carried through. So instead of maybe 5 or 10% of people you know, early 20th century that had cars that could do that. Now we're up to 95% of people who think that they're entitled to drive and park wherever they like and to do so for free. And as as Liz has pointed out, there's no such thing as, as free parking. Parking imposes significant costs on our cities and on our housing, on our environment, on our personal safety. And there's very little transparency around that. We really fail to acknowledge those costs. Um, We are sort of locked into this me here now sort of view of parking. We see parking from the driver's seat and we often fail Mm. to look at, you know, the actual cost and the impact of parking on our cities. The price that we put onto parking and the emphasis that we put onto parking. So if you're in a house that doesn't have, you know, that only has off-street parking, then your house is considered to be devalued as a result of that. Where does this attitude, where does this change come from, do you think, David? Well, I think it's so deeply instilled into us. I mean, I would argue that, you know, in that in those sort of mid-20th century period, and, and Liz has pointed to the impact of you know, car ownership and parking on the city, you know, people were sort of aspiring to buy cars. They wanted to buy cars. The media and, and advertising promoted cars, and it was, a, it was like an act of freedom and independence. Mm. So there's certain values deeply entrenched around the car 
and around the parking that are very hard to resist. But I, you know, I think we need to step back from being drivers and look more objectively at you know, the city and the impact of, of the car on the city. In, in relation to housing, for example, you know, we have an affordable housing crisis in Australia um, and a significant part of the housing cost, especially in high density areas, is parking. Mm. And yet we in Australia, we, we typically fail to do that whilst our friends in the United States are really, they're, they're moving towards parking reform. They're moving away from those... Which is interesting, isn't it, policies. when you consider Americans' love affair with large cars, of which we're following We're now bit. importing, yes. <laughs> yeah, well... I, I, I think Australia has got a whole bunch of parking policies that, that Bob Menzies would recognise almost word for word, you know, minimum rates, free parking. Um, and you're finding a lot of American cities, they just they have found those policies are redundant. They're very expensive and like American cities, like many successful Australian cities, have this affordable housing crisis. And the approach is to actually, you know, discuss parking, which is just, we're having a very rare opportunity here to discuss parking. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. Bring it here. We'll, we often we'll don't. Talk we about often it. don't. Yeah. And we're often more, it's, it's such an intensely emotional thing that we're normally shouting at each other about parking rather than <laughs> oh, really thinking Absolutely. about I think someone's out there shouting right now. I'm shaking <laughs> their fists. Um, David, if we completely change the way we uh, think about parking and you know we as you say stop looking at it from the the driver's seat what else has to change though because i'm thinking if you suddenly ch- um took out a whole lot of parking spaces or or scrapped uh standards you know minimum requirements around parking for new new housing and new developments surely there's got to be some change as well around the way our pavements are are um, constructed our public transport links all of those those other uh, safety measures all those other things that follow through well i would argue in the first instance that one of the biggest problems of parking is the lack of transparency around the cost now i heard one of your talkback uh, speakers mention park and ride earlier and you know cities like melbourne spend billions of dollars on park and ride and yet the accountability around that expenditure is, is, seems to be close to zero to me. If we start to understand the cost of, of parking, whether it's public parking um, in our centres or park and rent or parking in, in buildings for housing, once we start to understand the cost and we can start to think about, you know, what what is the maximum amount of bang you can get for your buck out of that that, that you know, hundred thousand dollars for the car park. We might start to think more critically about mm. improved footpaths, cycleways, better access to transit, but also any anything that's built within, you know, six, seven, eight hundred meters of a train station or along a main street transit corridor. I, I think there's a lot of housing there that they treat parking as an optional nice to have rather than than a need yeah. and we're, we're not catering to that we're insisting they have parking and we're insisting they pay that extra 80 90 hundred thousand dollars for that's a car it, that's a lot of money liz yeah, yeah I, absolutely absolutely I, one quick point i'd make is that i think some of the public transport and walkability questions are directly impacted by our sort of focus on parking now it's not always the case but say upgrading of our tram network to be accessible which is re- not only legally required but needs to happen that's mainly held up by anxiety about losing on-street car parking so sometimes we really need to 
kind of centre the conversation about other forms of transport, even if parking is um, an issue yeah. there. But in terms of reform, I think it is important to put it in that context. We have a lot of countries have this same, uh, you know, politicisation and, and um, anger, I suppose, motions around parking. We're not unusual in that sense. But David's right. There is a kind of wave of reform around parking happening in the US. Some of that's happening via the Stronger Towns Network, mainly from places kind of realising that the kind of uh, vibrancy and viability of their smaller towns has been really impacted by focusing on car parking because it means that they don't have that kind of actual density of uses there. And other things are coming from an affordability perspective. And I've just come from New Zealand from a conference and New Zealand at a national level abolished all parking minimums uh, a year ago. And... They're yeah. always making big changes. They are. <laughs> and it's, They're around Netherlands. <laughs> yeah. But there's places that have much more incremental changes. A lot of cities in, in Europe have just gradually reduced the amount of parking or gradually changed the way they do things or allocate street parking as well. But there's often a paucity of evaluation, and David's correct there. We don't have a transparency about how parking is used now, how much it costs, and a lot of changes need to have that benefit as well. So New Zealand, I don't know how it's going, but I did have an anecdote <laughs> that Wellington was an amazing city, super vibrant, mini Melbourne, I guess, and we thought it was just fabulous place to get around walking and, and on the bus and things like that. But when we went slightly out of town... Um, this woman we were staying with at a B&B, she's like, oh, Wellington, they killed it. They got rid of all the car parks. No one goes there anymore, meaning she doesn't go there anymore. So there's this kind of difference in experience between transport modes and, and users. using it. David, yeah. stay with us for a moment because Jared's called from Essendon. Morning. Uh, good morning. Hi. Hi. What did you want to add? Uh, well, my it's, your conversation's probably moved on a bit, but when you were talking about the parking at the hospital, it sort of piqued my interest. I'm with a, a little foundation called the Abbey Solo Foundation that supports families um, with kids with uh, um, childhood cancer in the hospital. And one of the supports we get is parking um, relief. Um, mm. Great. So what was the name of your foundation, Jared? It was the Abbey Solo Foundation. Abbey Solo Foundation. Yeah, after a girl who passed away eight years ago. And um, so we give practical support like food... It's a big issue, isn't it? And the impact that 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 cost has. Families who, over many years of treatment with their little ones, um, could spend up to ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars over their treatment in parking. So Mm -hmm. we provide uh, exit vouchers. What a great legacy. What a great. Thank you so much for sharing that. So that's the Abbey Solo Foundation. If people want some more information on that. Just finally, David, I mean, we, one thing we haven't spoken about is disability car parking and the, the advances or the, the, I guess whether or not we're going backwards when it comes to where we place disability parking, how we view it, how we design it. What's your opinion on whether or not we do it well or do it poorly? Well, I think just focusing on parking and the discussion of disability is a fascinating discussion. I mean, I I would argue that one of the things that's happened in the last few years is that we moved a lot of services out of the centre because people want more parking, but many people with disabilities actually don't drive. So they're being disadvantaged by that. The other thing is that every time we spend money on parking, we subsidised parking, that's money that's not being spent on creating a more uh, accessible environment. So Melbourne is way, way, way behind on, on its upgrades to stations to provide disability access. And if, you, if you're planning for what I would call universal access, that it's accessible to everybody, 
you know, our ageing community uh, are people who often don't drive, who need to be able to walk or use transit. Um, you know, we, we need to not just think about disability in terms of th those car parks. They're important, but they're not everything. What's, what, what matters is that after you park, you need to get out of your car and you have to walk. Ultimately, we all have to walk. Um, and yet we're stuck on so many, and I love Melbourne. It's a great, one of my great um, um, places to visit. But many of the footpaths in Melbourne are just atrociously small. Um, we, and not we maintained. Think yeah, and it's more important to have curb parking than it is to have wider footpaths and safer crossings. So, you know, I just think we need to sort of unhook ourselves from some of these really narrowly focused discussions around parking. And, and the previous speaker talking about hospital parking, you know, let's not just give people free parking, let's give people, if you're talking about empl hospital employees, a, if you like, a subsidy that enables them to make choices about their mobility rather than just locking them into free parking. Good to speak with you, David. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Dr David Mee from their Urban Planner and author of Rethinking Parking, Planning and Urban Design Perspectives. And when we look at our love affair with cars fundamentally over the last couple of decades, Dr Elizabeth Taylor, do you ever did you ever think that we would see the day where apartments would be built without car parks and almost celebrate the fact and say, well, we don't need them. We're going to design these apartments so you can either maybe car share, but there's going to be lots of bike space and it's not seen as a negative, but seen as a positive. It's certainly not, not for everyone. And I guess I'll also say we did have that day, you know, in the 1920s, some of the kind of flats that we think are really, the Art Deco flats that are kind of um, very saleable don't have off-street parking as well. But they've come back. It's It's been against, I guess, the uh, regulatory environment. So one of the main reasons that uh, apartments have come with parking is because we have minimum off-street parking requirements. There's areas like the Melbourne CBD where they're not in place, but in most places you have you have to build it, whether that means basement, um, less commonly it's kind of um, off-street kind of placement as well. But it's part of the cost and it's also part of the design. So I think what's shifted... Um, was partly that Nightingale case. There are all, always tensions around um, meeting that minimum parking requirement because it's quite expensive and developers know that, that you have to build it. That means less housing. That means more construction costs. That means all sorts of trade-offs that um, people necessar not, don't necessarily think are valuable. The real kind of flashpoint was that Nightingale case where there was an um, apartment building with no parking and it came up against uh, VCAT, our civil administrative tribunal, saying, no, actually, everyone will need a car park. And that probably put attention on it. But I think the design quality and the kind of different um, locations, different demands for apartments and, and housing are shifting. Again, not universally, but we know from the research places like London, for example, that removed minimum parking requirements back in 20, 2004, that when you don't force developers to put in parking, a lot of the times they will still put in parking because people want to pay for it, but it's a lot fewer people than the regulatory settings mm. previously assumed. And there is a demand for apartments, particularly if you end up, because you're not paying for a car park, you get a bigger apartment, you get a nicer apartment. Um, people do value those and there are other options. Firstly, in terms of the actual design of the apartments can be freed up a lot by not having to fit that, that amount of parking on the site. So I know some of those um, low-car or no-car developments, it's not that they don't have it, it's that they park their car in a shared sort of, like in the Japanese situation, it's a neighbourhood car park, um, park and ride or mobility hub sometimes they're called. 
So the focus of the design of the housing is pedestrian-oriented, etc. And that demand is there when the transport is there and when people have mm. kind of trade-offs around housing. Mick Sinchalong. Morning, Mick. Good morning. Uh, I just wanted to uh, put the counter view uh, and uh, case for us living in the outer suburbs. And uh, I heard mention of uh, your uh, guest planner speaking about the importance of footpaths. Since I was born and grew up, I've lived in four separate houses in outer suburban areas. Not one of them has ever had a footpath. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. That's uh, so true. So I, I'm currently doing a one-hour commute to my work from outer suburbs, and I cannot viably do that on the public transport that's available to me. Yeah. And so while we try and constrain car travel and car parking for the inner and medium suburbs when we try and make even higher density, which I appreciate. Um, for us living in the outer suburbs for by choice or by economic new home buyer, young family pressures. That's exactly we right. Still need our, we need our cars to travel. If I come into the city to visit a, a family member in a hospital, I still need to be able to park and that when we talk coma. about urban planning and how we th- what we don't consider and that when we talk about car parking, it's more than just car parking. It's looking at entire infrastructures, including public transport. We'll talk safety and car parks in just a moment, but how does car parking impact you? This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Well, we're talking car parking today. Rochelle Hunt and Bronwyn O'Shea with you. Dr Elizabeth Taylor, a Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning and Design from Monash Uni is with you as well. We're going to talk women and safety when it comes to car parking in just a tick. But Elizabeth's in Preston. Morning, Elizabeth. Oh, hi. Um, I just want to mention um, the size of cars now. They're, they're trucks. They're too, too big. And they're also um, uh, parking in the streets and making the tre- streets really unsafe. In fact, you've got to go around some and end up in the middle of the road. And I have seen a number of times near head-ons because yeah. the cars are too wide and right to, at, to the edge of the um, cor- you know, the corners. Absolutely. And some of them don't physically fit in the car park. They're hanging yeah. over the edge. And I had to scoot in. I parked, went in, got some groceries, came out and realised that there was one of those big ram-style utes next to me so I couldn't get into the driver's side and I had to get in the passenger side and do the little bum shuffle across <laughs> from the passenger, <laughs> passenger side to the driver's side. And, you know, I saw if, uh, in the last couple of months Standards Australia were, were considering, had a discussion paper out there to say, should we increase the size of our car parking spaces to accommodate these bigger vehicles that are more common? And one of the arguments was, you know what, if you're going to buy one of those enormous tanks, maybe consider that you won't be able to park in a regular car park and that's part of what that ownership decision involves. Robert's in Canterbury. Hello Robert. Oh hi, how are you? I'm well. What did you want to share? Oh look, I'm just talking about uh, street parking and resi- just mm. in the normal suburban residential street. Mm. Now sometimes the whole street on both sides is just full of cars because People have two, three, four cars per family. They don't have parking space on their property and means there's only one lane for cars to go up and down, which can be a safety issue at some time given the speeds that some cars still drive up those roads. 
and you were talking before about how in Japan you can't get a car unless you have a parking space. Mm. Yeah. Not necessarily on your property, but nearby. Sorry, I cut in. And you also notice when the train line maybe is down or, you know, when you get into your own street, you're like, whoa, what's with all the cars? And then you realise that people are trying to get all day parking closest to the train station and Yeah, and and they're spreading out. I think I wanted to add on the residential parking, which is really important. I did a bit of research on who is parking on the street in residential areas. And part of the answer, particularly in areas where, I guess, housing is really expensive, is that even when people have garages for the cars, they use those to store, they either convert them into living rooms or they use them to store all their stuff. So, and this kind of tees up with other cities as well. Increasingly, uh, garages aren't used for storing cars because people find other uses for them. The car gets in the driveway and then the second car goes on the street. So that's a big part of it as well. When we talk about high-rise car parking, I don't know about you ladies, but I very rarely park in them unless I have to. And then if I do, I call when I have to walk in them overnight. I've got someone on the phone and I have got a key in my hand, like a makeshift shiv at every given moment because they are absolutely frightening. There's something about the design of high-rise car parking that I just don't like. I think like. that the filmmaking world has picked up on this as well. There's well, many yeah, great scenes. All the bad <laughs> stuff happens. And maybe that's got something to do with it. Nicole Carms is from XYX Lab. It's been looking for years into women and safety when it comes to public spaces. Nicole, where does car parking and safety for women and gender diverse come into this conversation? Oh, look, yeah, I mean, it's really central. Um, women and gender diverse people consistently identify car parks as places of fear and trepidation. And this is particularly so at night when they might be poorly lit spaces. But you're right, they're about kind of high-rise residential places, but also really connected to public transport infrastructure. So um, the key things that they're kind of concerned about when they're in these kinds of spaces is that there's generally no formal Um, oversight or informal oversight often they're underground Um, sometimes they're used also as toilets by people that might just be randomly there and about and you know (laughs) all of these things as well as actually what Liz has just said about this kind of legacy of these spaces being unsafe in the media or in film and and kind of um, culture I think is really important in shaping their experiences. So what, can you make them safer? You know, if you have better lighting and change the design and ramp up security, does actually any of that make a difference to the way people feel in those spaces? Well, it does. And so there's a couple of things that I think is worth sharing in this conversation about how we're working with architecture practices and governments that are interested in thinking about how to make them safer. And the things that we hear from women and gender diverse people consistently is to really make sure that they are well lit, obviously, um, but also that you can have lighting that sees into the cars because that can often be, a you know, this idea of someone hiding out in the car. I mean, it sounds awful, but it is something that women carry with them to include um, multiple uh, modes of egress, so ways that you can exit that space and not just one but many modes to exit, that things like the walking time to the elevator um, and basic wayfinding should be really clear. And interestingly, Rochelle, one of the things you just Mm -hmm. said, having access to Wi-Fi is absolutely critical because as soon as you're disconnected, um, that's a really, really um, awful kind of predicament to find yourself in. And so mm. Wi-Fi is really important and often underground, maybe not so strong. So, 
Yeah. And how mm. often have you been on the phone and as soon as you drive into the oh, underground yeah, car gone. park, you lose your signal and it's, yeah, it's very yeah. terrifying. Um, one David, our, our earlier guest, Nicole, talked about, you know, kind of letting go of this expectation that we're going to get a park really close to where we want to be and that we might be have to be prepared to walk further um, mm. and, and park further away. What does that then mean for safety, not just in car parks, but even in those, um, you know, in streets and, and um, along footpaths? Well, I think that's exactly why I'm kind of raising this interrelatedness with public transport. And I know Liz will talk about this. It has talked about this as well. But if we're expecting people to walk or indeed not use cars, then we need to make sure that the public transport is adequate and safe. Um, and what is one of the things that's happened with some of the local government organisations we've worked with is that they're kind of taking away the residential parking and sometimes even the street parking. And what happens is um, women are really concerned about what that means because the public transport isn't actually adequate. And they're also concerned because of just general safety issues of being on the street when they're going to work, commuting, you know, going to university, etc., having, you know, moving their children around. Because when the they can, as soon as generally women can, what the first thing that they'll do with their disposable income is buy a car because they're concerned about issues of safety. And so you're kind of in a double bind. You want to be safe, you want to use public transport, but actually those things aren't adequate or they don't feel safe and therefore you're kind of pushed in this kind of cycle of relying on um, car transport. And here we see this kind of dreadful mess, this thing we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, and there's just something about the design of them and the vortex that you get into, how they all look, look the same, like every level, you're not sure what level you're on. There's just something stressful about those spaces. The work that you do is really important, Nicole. Thanks so much. Nicole Carms there from XYX Lab is looking into women and safety. One thing that we haven't touched on, and it's probably crazy to throw it at the end, but I'll, I'll throw it to you, Liz, and it says you haven't talked about electric cars and charging and this is a big big shift and as an electric car driver myself Mm -hmm. i'll find car parks now i look at them through a very different lens of where i can park yeah great point to to raise i mean there's a whole range of sort of shifts in mobility there's electric mobility shared mobility there's the kind of micro mobility as well the, the scooters and things like that and there's the prospect or threat i guess of autonomous vehicles and all of these kinds of changes all come with changes in how we store vehicles. And that's, I think, coming up, butting up against our car parking approaches, which notwithstanding the middle of the city and a few other exceptions are mainly grounded in the 1950s, a 20th century version of automobility and rising private car ownership. And we're really struggling. Other countries perhaps are making more inroads, but we're struggling to adapt partly because we don't have the data. We don't know how the parking's used. Even our standards, they're still mainly around the number of car parking spaces when we have a whole diversity of different kinds of vehicles. We don't have any requirements mm. for electric sta- uh, charging stations to be brought in. And we're now seeing those things like the people putting their power cord across the footpath, which has its own kind of impacts on walkability because we, we can't sort of easily make that transition. I think car parking in this sense, the electric vehicle transition and other kinds of changes car parking is kind of the key to all of it even if we don't think about it enough it's part of the city it's part of our whole commitment to uh, mobility and to uh, energy transitions as well and we need to kind of foreground it rather than just 
expect absolutely well i never thought there would be a line of research that would have so many seinfeld references in it (laughs) that would be so close to my heart and we haven't even spoken about the one where they lost the car in the car that's right and that's that your image of they all look the same and the goldfish dies and i've watched it just the other day with my daughter it's one of the best so if i'm ever going to change careers i think anything that will get me watching seinfeld to do car park research liz you might have yourself a partner i would love to do a whole (laughs) series on car parking in seinfeld Dr. Elizabeth Taylor, a senior lecturer in urban planning and design at Monash University. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Does your rage feel like it's settled a little bit more now, Bron, when it comes to car parking? Well, right now it has, but the minute I step outside, I think it'll be right up there again. (laughs) I'll be back with you tomorrow. Until then, take care and speak soon.